0: Welcome back to Behind the Well Show. I'm your host, Roger Abel, here with Elias Randall. How are you doing today, Elias? I'm awesome. Good, good. Funny, we tried to do this show the other day and we both had complete mind freeze, so we pushed this off a day. But but we're here now and I'm happy to be back. But it's funny because this show, we're going to talk about the new documentary, Borrowed Future, and about four hours after I watched this yesterday afternoon, a friend slash client of mine called. And said, hey, he had a question on 529 plans. And we just started getting talking about this. And I told him, I said, you know, this is probably something you should watch with your daughter. I think his daughter's like 14 years old. And I, I just said, hey, have you guys had that conversation? Like, what are your plans? And he goes, yeah, I think she wants to be a it was a dentist or something. And I said, that's great. You should watch this with your daughter now. Kind of laying the groundwork. And I kind of had like not this epiphany moment, but just a little bit of planning can go a long way so your family doesn't fall into the same problem that 45 million us borrowers have in the us and that's with student loans
1: yeah and what really to go along with that one thing that really stuck out uh for me and this would be a good if you have a uh, a student in your house who's 14 or 15 right now i think a lot of people don't know and i certainly didn't know this when i was high school age but um there's a lot of scholarship money out there that goes unused, and I don't remember the exact figure, but um, there was a book talked about in the documentary. So if five hundred
0: million or yeah. five hundred thousand, this gal um, in the documentary found in scholarships and utilized to get her through college.
1: Yeah, and she she wrote a book. Um, it was like Confessions of a Scholarship Winner. So I would say anyone listening, if you have a high school age student, that's probably a good starting place to start getting some of this figured out is maybe get her book and read it because she she awarded herself five hundred thousand to go to school. So um that's and she kind of some of the points she made uh don't overlook the five hundred dollar and the thousand dollar scholarships that are out there. She she applied, she said she applied for a lot of those and a lot of those you end up getting well if you get $20,000 scholarships, I mean, it's a lot of work to do all those applications and stuff, right? But that's $20,000 right there.
0: So that's actually what a good part of our conversation revolved around. In the fact that it is a lot of work, and they interviewed several people. and They asked why they didn't do scholarships. Well, let's think about what really happens. You have a student. They get to their senior year, and now they have to start figuring out, how to get scholarships, and what's available. And most people wait until the last minute to do this. It's just human nature to procrastinate because it's unknown, it's unfamiliar. Um, and You just don't want to deal with it. My conversation with my friend was, hey, look, if you put in a little bit of effort over a long period of time, it's very similar to the compounding of money, but it's just the compounding of efforts. I said, if you wait to do this until your senior year, it won't get done. But if you start in a year or two years, just a little bit of time every day, 10, 15 minutes, not waiting until the last minute. Then we have to spend 15, 20, 25 hours doing scholarships and essays and figuring out where they're at, man, that compounding effect of time and energy can help somebody stay out of financial ruin. And that's not talked about. And I started to think about it's really no different than having a really good financial plan. What's your college scholarship, your college payment plan Right. I mean, for families, we talk about having a five twenty nine plan. So we have a way to help pay for college. But there's so much more that could go into this from a family dynamic of how do we actually plan to not start our kids out with debt? So one of the key phrases I thought about in this was in today's society, schools really become like the barrier to entry. Right. To open any doors, it's thought that you have to have a college degree. And if you don't, then you won't have a good job. And and that's what's really become today. And unfortunately, the first thing we do to most high school kids is say, hey, here's a piece of paper, sign it. And if you don't, you won't get a good job.
1: Yeah. Well, and that's the and the what the the colleges and even the high schools have become, you know, they're very good at selling this dream. And um, the, the reality is college is a good solution for a lot of people. College to me isn't the uh, like the end all be all solution of a career. There's plenty of there's other paths you can take You can do a, a trade apprenticeship through unions. Um, you can do there's technical schools that you can go to to learn how to have just specific skills. There's community colleges where you can get you can get two years out of the way and working towards a degree. Yeah, but just kind of the idea that borrow money because this is your barrier to entry into having a successful career. That's kind of an idea that it'd be we kind of need to move away from that and then uh, or f- I guess families in general. Um, and Dave Ramsey was on this on this um, documentary and he's talking about, being intentional. And that's something you hear a guy like Dave Ramsey say all the time, being, you know, put some effort and thought into it and being intentional about it. And I can, I'll just admit when, when it came time for me to go to school, I filled out the paper that like, here's all the stuff you need to do. You need to fill this out, turn it in. And I wasn't intentional about it. I knew where I wanted to go to school. I kind of knew what I wanted to study. And I just signed up for the loans because that was the, that was the thing you did.
0: Yeah, those are some good points. In in the documentary, there's a gentleman named Mike Rowe, and I don't know if anybody knows who this is, but just go Google him. But he has a show on, it's Discovery or History, called yeah. Dirty Jobs. And he goes and follows people around that do dirty jobs, like the stuff that people don't think would pay well. It's, it's the jobs that people look at if you don't get a college degree as the alternative. And he made a really, he had a really good saying in this. He said, instead of thinking about what you want to do, figure out how you want to work. Do you want to work with your hands? Do you want to sit? Think about how you want to work. And if you start to do that, you'll be happy. Like you said, maybe you want to work with your hands and you want to be a plumber. And people don't think plumbers do well. They make like $100,000 a year.
1: Yeah, you can make a lot of money. As
0: so, a plumber. so I think it was really eye-opening. And what it focused on is the amount of debt that the student loan industry has out there. The private student loan industry over the last seventy or the last ten years has grown by seventy percent. It's a one point eight trillion dollar industry. Um the average student loan debt is thirty seven thousand six hundred ninety one dollars. But here's what I want people to think about. That's the average. So that takes all the people that have three or four or five thousand and blends it with the people that have two or three hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. Well, there or was there
1: a, was a there was a Orthodontist. Yeah, the orthodontist on that documentary had over a million dollars of
0: debt. There's 100, 101 people in America that have over a million dollars of student loan debt. And we look at this orthodontist, we look at an orthodontist and say, hey, he's rich. I mean, if you said, hey, you're an orthodontist, you have your own business, you're rich.
1: That's the, the assumption. That's the assumption. Right. In the
0: video, he actually breaks down and starts to cry and he goes, I don't know how. I will ever make enough money to pay this, do- pay this off so far. They paid off 400,000 have 600,000 to go. They gave a little updated at the end on people, but our kids aren't thinking about what the repercussions are of what they're doing. So a couple of things that we should be looking at is, Hey, if we know we want to be a teacher, does that require us to go to Harvard or private school? You could go get, like you said, get a two year degree get all your prerequisites done, and then go to the school that's a good teaching school in-state. Too many kids have bought into this idea that college is about the experience, and it is. But is it, but is it worth a $200,000 experience? No. Think about what could you do with $200,000 and what experiences could you get over your lifetime for $200,000? And I promise you, it's more than four years of college. Uh, yeah. And there's yeah. so many ways that kids can work themselves through college and not have debt. I mean, when I went, my dad told me, Hey, here's a pot of money. We're paying your tuition. Everything else is on you. Well, he taught at Kirkwood. Well, I went to the community college cause I wanted to go for free. So I got out of my first two years with no debt. I worked 40 hours a week while I was in school. I, I went to Iowa for two years I came out with like ten thousand dollars in loans because my senior year I wanted to get done. I didn't want to have to work, so I borrowed enough money to live and do all those things. But that's a reasonable amount of debt versus what I what I make. But it, had I financed and had the college experience, I would have had fifty or sixty thousand dollars of debt coming out of college.
1: Oh, there, I'm sure there's plenty of people listening that are thinking ten thousand. I would I'd love to finish right. I mean, I feel 10, fortunate in debt. Yeah. I yeah. feel way fortunate that right, that's all should. I had.
0: But part of it's because the decision I made, I lived at home. I mean, I lived at home my first two years of college. No college kid wants to live at home. But I did it because I didn't want to spend the money. Right. I just I didn't want the loans. In fact, a funny story. So I have family that has deep roots to Luther College. You know what Luther College is. Mm -hmm. And I was dead set on going to Luther College. Like, that's where I was going. So I was going to go there, play football for fun. That's it. Just wanted to go play fun. I went there and sat through like a day of classes and hung out with the football players and all the fun things, you know. And the next morning, they take you and start talking about like the financial aid package and all that stuff. And they're like, well, it's this is the number. And it was like 44000 a year. They like 44000 I said, is that for all four years? They're like, no, no, that's per year. <laughs> Whoa. So on the way home, <laughs> I made a decision really quickly. That I was not going there, even though that's where I wanted to go. I mean, that's where I wanted to go to school. I just wasn't going to do it because I didn't see the value or the benefit of spending that amount of money, especially when I wasn't going for a specialized degree. I mean, I knew what I was going to do from the time I was in high school. I knew I was going into the financial world at some level. And was I going to get there faster? Probably not. And there's arguments for who you know. I had this conversation with my wife and said, well, yeah, but if you're at Harvard, you meet people and you get connections and maybe get a better job and I said the key word there is maybe
1: yeah it, it maybe and, most of and the yes that can happen but is that like statistically does I mean I know plenty of, I went to school with people that through connections through the college we went with ended up with good jobs and stuff so there's a percentage of people that that happens for but it's not 75 80 90 percent it's a much smaller 5 10 percent of people are able to leverage those type of good connections to get good get started in a good career
0: and for most people the idea of college the reason they're going there is to have the american dream right get it i'm going to college to get a good job that's why they go there for real yeah i'm going to college to it. get a good job unfortunately when they graduate all of their paycheck goes to their student loans
1: yeah that's what that's it's going that, to yeah and, and, and that's the painful part
0: some of it is the it's the student loan industry has pushed these loans, They're a profit center. Sally Mae is a profit center. They want to sell loans. The other problem is we've sold or the colleges have sold this experience to people. And I know individuals who've borrowed money to go on J terms and all these different traveling abroad. And that's great. But you borrowed money to do it. You borrowed money to go on vacation. But the school will make you feel like, well, no. You were enrolled in school. This an was academic, edu- experience. Is academic experience. No, it yeah. was a vacation. So I feel bad for some of these people, but some people just made a really, really bad decision, right? Or you know, Dave Ramsey has a different, a different. That's workforce. a little harsh, don't you think? It's what it is. You pay. You borrow money <laughs> to go on vacation. But in in other news, we talked about the auto IRA provision, uh, one or two episodes ago about how there's a built to make employers automatically roll employees in a simple IRA or an IRA at time of employment. And I always think this is hilarious and we've talked about it before, but the American Securities Association has come out and said that violates securities law. So the people making the laws made a law that would violate the law.
1: Well, and they so they don't understand yeah, it's like so they don't even understand how the current laws impact the decision they're trying to make now, which I think goes to the point you made in that episode that we have politicians making laws around the financial services business and they don't really have the knowledge and experience to probably make those good decisions.
0: So so here's what happened. They passed legislation called Know Your Customer which requires advisors, investment advisors, brokers, to get to know their customers as much as possible. You need to know their financial background, their net worth, liquid net worth, risk tolerance, just as much information as you can to make a good recommendation for somebody. In all non non-Eurissa retirement plans. So a 401k falls under ERISA, which is a different governing um, body. But because of this, The employer is not responsible to find out all those things about the employee. So it it violates the know your customer law. So it goes back to my analogy. The people making these laws, it's not dissimilar to me making laws about structural engineering, which I have no background in structural engineering. If I made a law about structural engineering, I promise you it's not going to be good for their community because I don't know anything about it. You could Google something about it. I would Google it. That would be my knowledge base. (laughs) But I thought that was, I I, I just saw it and I laughed because I just, you know, they, they don't even put enough effort into figuring out what the current law is to make sure what they're proposing will actually work. And once again, I don't believe that the auto enrollment for employees in an IRA is a bad thing. I think it's probably a good thing. But they just have to make sure they're doing it in concert with what they've already passed as law. Previously, I guess. So they can't
1: put that onus on the employers to know your customer. I suppose they could have what if you open the IRA through a financial professional like small businesses could hire someone to help the employees do it. Then is that cover
0: that or maybe. But then why not just have it adopted under ERISA, which follows the fiduciary rules and. What, what, what I think is going to happen is it's going to go more to maybe we require employers to have some type of a ERISA retirement plan, also known as 401k, right? Um, the problem is that could be very costly for employers to implement, and it could actually cause some changes in our industry and maybe some disruption in price pressure or pricing pressure on 401k um, administrators and providers. I don't know, but it doesn't seem as if it's probably going to work making people auto-enroll into a Roth IRA yeah, or a traditional IRA or a simple IRA. Right. So, Elias, one of the hot topics of 2020 and 2021 has been cryptocurrency, and it's back in the news. And as of this morning's filming, the first Bitcoin futures ETF – debuted on the New York Stock Exchange Good. trading today Perfect. and I'm looking at the I'm looking at the screen right here 38 minutes ago the bitcoins future ETF rises 3% in trading debut. Um, so this is really the f- really first easy access the retail consumer has had to a cryptocurrency and I want what, what I think people should realize is this is a futures contract. Um, it's not backed by physical bitcoin if bitcoin's physical digital bitcoin
1: <laughs> it's, physical, it's in, physical in the, the matrix it's physical in the matrix
0: in the yes if you take the red pill or the purple pill i don't remember what color the pills were but if that's the <laughs> pill you take then maybe it's a physical object yeah but i think it's interesting because we're seeing cryptocurrency become much more mainstream We're having even older clients talk about it on a pretty regular basis. Um, And I think it's kind of cool that we finally brought this mainstream for individuals if it's something they're interested in. And as we tell people, we caution you because this is highly speculative. The markets are very, very volatile. In fact, two months ago, Bitcoin was trading about 30,000, yesterday was 62. So you're talking about a massive rise, but you could see a massive fall as well. So it's a highly, you know, volatile market. But there is access now for retail investors who don't want to go to go to set up an account on a Coinbase or some other market and have a wallet and all the other things that have been involved with owning cryptocurrency.
1: Okay, and so the CTF that come that came out. So you're, those are futures contracts, so you're either saying you believe the price is going up or the price is going down? Correct. And you can just, so, but when you buy it, you're not just tracking the price of Bitcoin?
0: Well, it closely pat- tracks the price, but it won't exactly track the spot price of Bitcoin because it's not backed by digital Bitcoin. Meaning they're not having to buy Bitcoin as investors pour money into this. There's been a futures contract traded for a while, but this is now the ETF that's going to follow that price. Yeah. So then, is it
1: okay? Because I feel like I am personally, I'm probably, I'm probably bullish on like crypto and the technology and stuff, but I'm still not a buyer of it. I don't own any. I don't plan on buying it because it's too speculative, of an asset. Is that um, like as an investor, is that an okay posture to have to say, yeah, I think that's going to be something, and I do think it's going to work out, but I'm still not a buyer.
0: It's no dissimilar than what Jamie Dimon came out and said a few weeks ago. I won't ever own Bitcoin because I don't really explain Bitcoin or I don't really understand Bitcoin. And we talk about that with people a lot. If you don't really understand what you have and why you're doing it, does it make sense for you to own it? Some people believe they understand it, they can explain it. And if they want to own it, they sure, you should. But if you don't understand, it's a good posture to take. Just, OK, I don't own it. I might miss out. But the question becomes, how much are you missing out on? And here's why.
1: No one knows. No one's going to know that part. I mean, you know what what you've missed out on up to now.
0: But let me ask you a question. And this is what I want people to think about. If you have a well-written, executed financial plan, and you're 40 years old, you're working with a financial advisor, you've quantified where you are today, where you want to go in the future, and your probability of success is 95%. Does it matter if you own Bitcoin and it goes through the roof? It shouldn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. The only,
1: the, the only place it matters is uh, like your greed. If you're so greedy, you need to have uh, crazy returns. That'd it's, be the it's only not even place that. it The matter.
0: only place it matters is at the neighborhood barbecue and your buddy's telling you about how he bought Bitcoin then you feel bad about it. That's it. Right? Because the converse is true too. Yeah. It may not work out. So if you're a... One of dabble in Bitcoin, what's the recommendation we've given people from day one? It's not a steadfast recommendation, but execute a financial plan, do everything you have to do to be on track for retirement. And then if you have additional capital, money, gambling, your gambling or speculative fund, that's what you utilize it for. But you don't take your core retirement, your core investment dollars and start plugging it all into this stuff. Even though, hey, it's exciting, It should only be your gambling money. And it's probably for most people, a very, very, very small sliver of their portfolio that would even be in something like a Bitcoin ETF.
1: Well, you would hope, yeah. You would hope, but that's not human nature. Right. So I'm not, so the fear of missing out, the FOMO, probably not the best reason
0: to uh, dump money into an asset. People that are highly successful at investing have eliminated human emotion. And that's why. Having a financial plan is great. It removes all the human emotion, all the unknowns that we don't know. The people I typically see gravitating towards things of this nature are people that are behind and they're looking for the lottery ticket to catch them
1: up. So, Roger, are you talking about like that situation there? People looking for the lottery ticket. Maybe they're behind a little bit and they think they need to hit a home run to kind of catch up. It kind of... Um, segues into an article that Molly shared with us about um, the IPO boom that's been going on in the U.S. And actually, as I was reading it, I thought, you know, this is interesting because there's all these, you know, now we're having records of initial public offerings and there's money chasing it and going into that. And I thought, I started to think, is is this kind of a behavior where people... They think they need to go look somewhere else for returns other than just having a good, quality, diversified
0: portfolio. Well, so the IPO market, let's back up and tell people what an IPO is. It's the first time a company's been offered to the public. So I think Facebook had their IPO, I don't know how many years ago, but it's the first time the stock is offered on the public markets. It doesn't mean that people haven't already invested in it. And- The IPO does a couple of things for the company. It provides liquidity for the people who have owned it from the beginning. They're now able to to sell shares. But two, it also raises capital for the company for expansion. Um, Typically, people aren't going to issue stock unless they want to grow the company. We've had 2,000 IPOs as of September for a combined $421 billion. And part of the reason I think people are drawn to the IPO, a lot of it are the new companies they've been using, and now it's exciting to buy, and they think they're going to do well, right? Also, people have heard of individuals making lots of money on an IPO. Well, most of the people who've made the money on the IPO are the original investors who then can sell shares after the stock IPOs, and individuals on the, the market can go buy it, that's where the money's made. It's not necessarily from the person who buys it at the IPO price. In fact, we have a little statistic here. Um, shares of U.S. companies that went public in the last four weeks have gone up 25% on average compared to a rise, a 42% rise in value for those that went public this time about four months ago. The problem is some of that is just because the market happened to go up during that period of time. Okay. Um, and the market has had some volatility, which has actually caused several IPOs to be pulled back and say, "Hey, we're not going to list." In the last three weeks, iFit Health and Fitness, um, which is the owner of Nordic Track, Aluve Systems, an alternative investment technology solution, um, and a couple of bio pharma or biotechnology firms, all pull their IPO, blaming market volatility because there's an unknown or less less solid price that they think they're going to get. So. The IPO market is speculative in nature, but it's popular because a lot of times it's the brands you've never been able to own before. So people like to jump on. I remember, was it Beyond Meat a couple of years ago listed? It went through the roof and then the price came back. Um, so just because you buy an IPO or stock that IPO doesn't mean you're going to make money. I mean, I think Coinbase IPO, was it this past spring or summer? And the price went yeah, down pretty, pretty sharply nice right away it all depends on what the price set by the syndicate and the underwriters are whether you know you're going to be able to make money um early on in that stock or not so one of the other articles i sent out for the show elias um was about a bill to change social security cola expand an expanded payroll tax um it's coming uh, basically in one day they're they're planning on um submitting this bill but what it's doing is it wants to combine the old age and survivors trust with the disability trust into one entity. Um, they want to adopt a COLA that matches the consumer price index. So it more, tr- more accurately tracks what's really happening with um, the cost of goods. And they also want to apply a payroll tax to wages above $400,000. And I've talked about this for a while, and this is how I think they'll probably try to solve the fact that the the old age, old age and survivors um, insurance trust uh, to try to push it out farther is to raise revenues. So what this means, if you think about the the average person, um, after you hit $142,000 of income, you no longer contribute to Social Security. It shuts off. What they want to do now is turn it back on once somebody hits $400,000 of income. Okay, so there's
1: going to be an income where you're not paying, and then it's once you hit go over 400000 now you're paying back into the Social it's, it's Security. A, it's a gap.
0: Right now, everybody pays up to 142000 then you don't pay anymore at all. Now they want to turn it back on. Once you hit four hundred thousand. So there's, you know, what, a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar gap of income that's not subject to um, that's not subject to the Social Security payroll tax. But they want to turn that on at four hundred thousand now. But one of the things I think is interesting because we're hearing about inflation a lot. I mean, that's been a hot topic the last few months. Um, This year, Social Security is getting a five point nine percent increase, which is huge. You think about somebody who gets a $2,000 a month benefit, it's going up 120 bucks. That's a right. big amount for cool. most people every single, it's a $2,000 year raise.
1: So this year what did you say it was 5.9% yeah. is the cola. So why is it so high this year?
0: Well, we've seen increase in energy, food, cost of goods, inflation's running around 5.9%. Look at when you go to the grocery store, I used to go to the grocery store for a family of four for like 200 bucks. It's three hundred every week now. I mean, there's just no way I get out of the store for less than two hundred seventy-five or three hundred bucks. Right. To the and gas so the, pump, yeah. Gas so, is twice as much.
1: Yeah, and so seniors that are on social security, if that income just stays fixed, and they're effectively, if it doesn't ever go up, they're just taking a pay decrease every year because of inflation. So, yep. there needs to like there needs to be something that helps them keep up with.
0: They've always with got that raises. reliable income. They've always got raises, mm-hmm. but it's never been tied to the CPI the Consumer Price Index. So it's going to more accurately track that. But it brings up the bigger question and the question people are asking that's about inflation. Um, And we've seen, and every single person out there will attest that things are way more expensive than they've ever been. I mean, I'm paying like $15 for apples. All the stuff that's healthy is way more expensive. Gas is double. Health insurance. I just got my health insurance increase. It went up 10%. Everything is just going up from a cost standpoint. And some of that is because of the supply chain disruptions. You know, I've, I ordered a bike back in May, supposed to ship in September. It's sitting on a crate in long beach at the dock waiting to go through customs. And they don't know how long it could be. They said it could be six months for your bicycle for my bicycle.
1: I thought you had it already. I thought it showed
0: up. I thought it was supposed to. No, it hasn't shown up. Huh. I, I sent an email the other day. They're like, yep, it's on the dock. It's in Long Beach waiting to go through customs. I go, how long? Could be six months. So that's part of the reason that we're seeing the cost of things rise. I was in Target last week grocery shopping. They didn't have any spices on the aisle. No spices? I looked at the spice aisle. There's nothing there. Like just <laughs> simple things we take for granted. ponzu if I don't do you know what ponzu sauce is? No, I don't. You can't find ponzu sauce anymore. It's like this citrus Asian sauce. They don't have it at Hy-Vee, Target. I can't find it anywhere. Hmm. So that's causing inflation to really, really rise. And it's things investors are concerned about because as inflation goes up, We have to change interest rate policy, potentially raise interest rates, which would cause bond prices to fall. Um, So there's different things investors need to really be cautious with if we get some inflation and figure out, hey, what part of my portfolio could be affected by inflation? How do I combat that? Because there's certain asset classes that will do better if we get inflation higher than expected. And there's certain asset classes that will do significantly worse if we get inflation so you should be having that conversation with your financial advisor as to you know what asset classes does it make sense to be in if we get inflation
1: yeah so did you did you read and see that um it was from lpl research that it had like it was it talked about renewed inflation expectations. so basically what they're getting at so consumers do expect to see more inflation um which and we've talked about and i guess i still I I to me I still think like when these supply chain issues get solved I think that's going to help resolve some of it and I think there's other things that'll keep inflation in check like consumers have the ability to shop online now so we have like instant access to prices but I, one thing I was reading in this research report from LPL um and this is a this is an opinion of mine but so I guess consumers do believe that housing prices will start to come down. And I actually had a conversation with a friend the other day who was saying the same thing. Cause he's, he's shopping for a house and he's saying, well, I'm going to wait till prices come down. And I feel like there's a little bit of thought that just because they're so high, the prices have to come down, but that just because they're high and I get like, it's natural to think, Oh, the price has to come down. It's not going to go on forever. Well, the data about how homes and supply and demand right now, so there's not enough home builders in the country to catch up with the demand that we have we're for houses. We're short 5 million homes. Yes. For are short so 5 million homes. The supply is not close to the demand. We don't have enough contractors that build homes to resolve this, so I think and reading this kind of highlighted to me, well, people think housing prices will start coming down, but I would, my opinion, and I would argue that, there's data that suggests that housing prices will continue to rise.
0: The thought that housing prices will come down, I don't know where people get this. Because you're assuming someone's willing to take less for their house now.
1: Well, and I think it's just the, the prices have just kind of escalated Quickly, and I think people are thinking maybe they're thinking back to 2007 and 8, but they're they're different situations. And
0: Here's why. In 2007 and 8, they had to sell their house. They couldn't afford it. That's why housing prices came down. It wasn't because the house was too expensive. The mortgage that was given to the person wasn't appropriate. That caused housing prices to go down. Will it ebb and flow a little bit? Yeah, but I don't think you're going to see people. You know, I look at what the price of these homes are, and the same house from a year is up like a hundred thousand dollars, like new construction. I'm just not sure the builder is going to take less than he has in the house. I don't think houses price, housing prices are going down until people can't afford the home.
1: I and, and I and, I would agree with that. And there's one
0: one thing that can lend to that: if interest rates go up two percent, and all of a sudden you're at a five percent mortgage. That could cause that to happen, right? Because as interest rates go up, your cost to borrow goes up as well. But we've had this conversation. I've told people for, I was told from the time I bought my first house, interest rates will never be lower. Told this story. I've had like eight mortgages. They just keep going lower. I was on the drive with my banker over the weekend. Interest rates, they're going up a little now. But are we more likely to go lower or higher over the next 15 years? Instincts tell us higher. But realistically, if all of a sudden the interest rate goes to 5% on on a mortgage and nobody decides to borrow at 5%, what happens to the housing economy?
1: Well, that would cause housing prices to come down. If no one's going to take out a loan at 5% to buy a house. It's not
0: just housing. It's everything. It's the subcontractor. It's the drywaller. It's the title company. It's the insurance company. It's the real estate agent. It's everything. If you think about what drives the American economy, it's some level. It's housing because everybody touches it. Everybody owns one. Everybody touches it. If you think about how many jobs one home employs, it's unbelievable. So the idea that it that interest rates are going to go to five percent. On a mortgage rate, I just don't see that happening, even if there is inflation, because now all of a sudden we're shutting down another sector of the economy, because for instance, I have a rate at two point seven five. Well, if rates went to five, I just wouldn't sell. Like, I would yeah. just keep what I have
1: Yeah. Right. So only that-
0: if I was forced to sell, which happened in two thousand seven and eight. People had a low interest rate. They had a teaser rate on an adjustable rate mortgage. And then, oh, by the way, now that it adjusted up to five or six percent, they couldn't afford the mortgage. They had to sell. I'm not sure the lending world is operating in that loose capacity today where they may have those issues.
1: Yeah, well, and they may be loosened up a little bit, but probably the one area they're still there, you still have to show income to be able to get loans where there was a time where you could get a loan with like the what the ninja loan right no job no income and you could borrow money yeah well i don't think i think that's one area that has stayed away right
0: that doesn't exist and here's why all these loans are sold on the on the secondary market so your local bank goes and does a mortgage for you they're selling it to somebody and they're underwriting it the last two years i've had more calls from seniors about getting financial documentation so they can go take out a loan on a house. I mean, it's not. I mean, people with million and a half, two million bucks, and the bank won't lend them a couple hundred thousand dollars to buy a house while they wait to sell their house here. I mean, it's like pulling teeth to get it done. So yeah. I think the lending industry has changed. But with that said, if anybody out there wants help with a financial plan, you want to set a second opinion, on what you're doing, or just have some questions, please reach out to us at btwellshow.com we'd be happy to help you thank you for listening securities and advisory services offered through lpl financial a registered investment advisor member finra sip the
1: opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide
0: specific advice or recommendations for any individual To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax
1: professional.